You're listening to a Big MX Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Arma Energy. Presented by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Bill's Pipes, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting, Rhino Power Sports Supplements, Roy Borton Suspension, Watts Perfections, and Golden Tire. Simply the best motocross and supercross news from around the globe. And now, here's your host, Brad Gephardt. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Fly Racing, X-Brand Goggles, Just One Helmets, Bill's Pipes, W Wheels, Moto Ice Wrap, and of course, Traction MX. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With me on the line, we've got the button fly himself, Jimmy Button. Jimmy, how's it going? I'm good, man. Yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's a gorgeous day up here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's only about minus five degrees, so I think I'm going to lace up the skates after this, go to the outdoor rinks, which is probably not something that uh, you've got a whole lot of experience with. Uh, no, no, not, uh, not so much. Not living in San Diego. Fair enough. Um, as a completely off-topic question, who is the best hockey player slash pro motocross racer you know of? Best hockey player slash pro motocross? Yeah, like, is there anybody I, I, that races that plays the, hockey? Uh, of the current riders, I don't know. Of my generation, I would probably have to say Brian Swink. Really? Oh, he's from, yeah, he's from I, up there, though. If, if, my, if my memory serves me correctly, when me and Swink were teammates at Suzuki, like in the early 90s, I want to say he had skates and, and uh, had sticks and pucks and everything, and he used to, like, screw around and show people, like, tricks with the puck and, and all that stuff. So um, my memory might be a little bit off. I mean, that's, like, almost 30 years ago now. Yeah. But uh, I want to say that, you know, if, if it serves me well, I think I think he was pretty into it. Fair enough. Well, I'll have to ask him about that next time I talk to him. And uh, I know basketball was a big uh, a big activity, especially when you guys were uh, had like almost a three day yeah. event sometimes with both Supercross and uh, outdoor nationals. Who was the worst basketball player of all uh, of all pro motocross racers? The worst basketball player? Yes. Um, I don't know. Larry Ward was pretty good. <laughs> um, I can't think of like the worst. Um, Maybe the toughest, yeah, like the worst I can't think of. I can only think of, like, guys that played pretty good. Like, Larry, like, Big Bird was pretty good. Rhino was just, like, ultra intense. And I, I, I can think all of us probably got in a fight with Rhino at one time or another playing basketball at some stage of the game. But um, as far as, like, who was the absolute worst, like, I, I, I can't even – like, that doesn't jog my memory too much as, like, who was, like, you know, like, intense or, or whatnot. Who is the, or then who is the sorest loser other than Rhino? Probably Rhino. Probably Rhino. Fair enough. Right on, man. Well, uh, um... I'm glad you were able to come on the show. This you're a repeat offender on the motocross on the Big MX Radio podcast show. Uh, at first, we had, we only had a, a short period of time with you, so we really focused on a lot of uh, uh, rotor recovery stuff, and uh, that was yeah. an excellent interview. And I think that's where we'll, we'll probably end up at by the end of this because uh, that's where uh, you're currently in your office over at the Wasserman Group, and uh, we'll definitely uh, make come full circle to talk about that. 
Yeah, for sure. But uh, I wanted to go through your entire career with a fine tooth comb and kind of find out uh, some of those uh, those those great stories that you would have come across through a very a, a very successful career as a, a professional motocross racer. And I guess it all starts uh, from your days as uh, as an amateur being extremely dominant uh, out of your hometown. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, so I started racing, you know, I started racing in the late 70s, um, I want to say 78 or, you know, I think 78 maybe, because um, when I was, you know, when I was racing, when I first started racing, obviously it was just, you know, it was just for shits and giggles. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I mean, my dad, uh, my dad ran a Honda dealership. Uh, pretty much his entire, you know, business career lifespan. And so, obviously, my dad was into racing, got me into racing. And, you know, we just, you know, initially, we just went to a local track uh, in Phoenix, you know, which was uh, Canyon Raceway. And it was just, you know, it was just like a weekend gig. Me, me, mom and dad would go. And, you know, dad was riding like the 125 intermediate class or whatever. I don't think he rode a 250 at the time. Um, you know, and I was riding, uh, I was riding an RM60. Uh, actually, it was an RM50. The 60 hadn't come out yet, even though it was the same size bike. No doubt. Um, and so, you know, that was like 78, 79. And, uh, and again, like, there, like, never thought of anything as a career. It was just something that we did as a family on the weekends, you know? Yeah. And, um, it wasn't until, I want to say probably 1980. Uh, so kind of raced on and off for like a year or whatever, you know, just, you know, we didn't race every single weekend, just, you know, kind of a lot of the time. And um, my dad got me a, uh, a Yamaha YZ60 Monoshock because I was basically the only guy, I was the only kid that was racing that still had twin shocks. You know, I had this twin shock RM50. You know, and everybody else is either on the like the new RM60s or or they were running the you know they were running a, a Yamaha Monoshock, which was like basically like the bike. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I still had never won a race. I was I was always like the second or third place kid. Um, and and honestly, you know, it wasn't it wasn't even a big deal. But then my dad got me the the Monoshock bike, and I won my first race, and that was that was like my first taste of a victory and, and, you know, that feeling that you get from, from winning. I mean, winning is awesome. So, um, that kind of like spurred the fire to, to really kind of like really start like, I don't know if I'd say I start taking it like way more seriously at that point. Cause at that point I'm only like seven years old or something, but it, it definitely was a bit more intense. Right. So, of course. um, then we started riding like the Arizona state championships, um, and I still hadn't traveled out of the state yet. Um, but then I started, you know, basically I, I be, ended up kind of becoming like the best uh, 60 rider in Arizona. Um, you know, and then we went over to California. Uh, we came over here to Indian Dunes Raceway for the uh, um, Santa Claus Grand Prix uh, right before Christmas time. Right. And, uh, and I got my ass handed to me on a silver platter like you can't even believe. By Jimmy so, Button or uh, by uh, Buddy Antonez and everybody else. No, 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 no. By a kid by the name of uh, Richard Saxton. Uh, 
Okay. From Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, and me and Richard ended up being friends. We're still friends to this day. But, like, just, I, he waxed us all. Um, I, I haven't actually met Buddy yet. We, I didn't meet Buddy for about another year. We didn't start racing against each other. Okay. Um, and so, like, I, I, I remember feeling this sense of just, like, emptiness or whatever from from getting beat the way I got beat, and I didn't like that feeling at all. Like, I was really enjoying this whole lifestyle of winning all these races in Arizona. So we came home, and, and like, I think that's when I first made, like, that first big commitment to, like, I want to do this, and, like, I want to be good at it. Um, and that's when I think I started taking it quite a bit more seriously. So that would have been in 81. Uh, no, at the end of 1980, right before 81. And so we went home. And, uh, and yeah, then we came back and we, then we started coming over here to California, like kind of twice a month or so doing, uh, you know, local races and whatnot and NMA races, CMC races, and just trying to get, you know, get myself better. Um, you know, and kind of lo and behold, that's, that's basically what happened. So at this point, are you, uh, did you, your parents have a motorhome that you're sleeping, uh, you're sleeping in or was it a truck, a bike and some hotels? No, 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 no. We we didn't have money at all. Um, there there was no there was never a motorhome in my career ever, not wow. not once. Um, we had a um, uh, all white Chevy cargo van with no carpet. Had two seats in it. I used to sit in a uh, like t- it'd be totally illegal today, obviously. Yeah. But I used to sit, you know, we, we would drive, you know, it's like 400 miles from Arizona to California if we were doing a Southern California race and another 400 miles up to like the San Francisco area if we were doing Northern California stuff. And I would sit in a lawn chair, you know, behind the two front seats and my bike was in the back and, you know, I think we had our dog with us and we um, we slept in, in sleeping bags with like, we would have this like a roll of foam and we would sleep in sleeping bags in our uh, in our van, just our little white Chevy van, and um, and we had that van all the way through my first year of being a pro. Wow, wow, that's uh, that's quite the commitment, man. Uh, the, that's yeah. a commitment to the struggle that uh, you'd be uh, you'd, like. Like if that, if I guess uh, you don't really think of it much if, that, if that's all you're able to to have. But there was definitely um, people that weren't weren't faced with the same uh, same hurdles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't really I didn't really care about about anything like that. I mean, I I we had a you know our house at home. You know, the house that we lived in was small, but it was my you know it was home, and um, you know, I didn't really care about the whole financial situation. I mean, I knew my parents didn't have money and I knew it was a struggle and I knew that, you know, they borrowed money from, uh, from my grandparents and whatnot to, uh, to get us to races sometimes. And, um, you know, I know a couple of times, like we had some breakdowns, like the van would break down or something. And, you know, my grand folks would have to wire some money to us so we could get it fixed and get back home or whatever it was. And so I knew that like, you know, that I, at some point, it's like, well, you got to take this seriously, right? Because they're putting everything that they have into this, and um, um, you know, you got to you got to at least do your part uh, and and not make it just a total, you know, blow off of the money and everything. And so, I guess that was good for me. You know, I learned that at a really early age. You know, the value of a dollar, which is good. 
Um, and I, I mean, to be totally, totally frank and honest, I mean, it was really cool to show up in this little shitty van with my bike <laughs> in it and and wax off these guys that are that are you know they're showing up in their motorhome with their big trailer and their you know their bikes all pretty and they had you know they had like their own mechanic and all this stuff and I would just go work them um, you know we're just you know these this you know not well to do little family from Arizona and beating them so that part was. There was some motivation in that for sure, that um, that I was able to overcome, you know, not having a, a cushy situation to to go get the job done. I was still able to do it, so that was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, kind of is what it is. I mean, it makes you, it, it, you know, your situation in life is what it is, and it makes you, you know, the person that you end up being. So, you know, I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world. For sure, and I, I think that a situation like that uh, helps you uh, generate some toughness right out of the gates, um, and um, you, you kind of people see it, you pull up and they can't believe that uh, this kid that shows up in this van that like the setup's not as on point, and and nowadays that's such a like the, it's a head games of, of people they want to have the biggest rig in the in the pits, especially at amateur races, and they want to have yeah. ten bikes lined up. And uh, you yourself, you show up with uh, with the bike, which I'm sure um, your dad had it running like a top. That like it, it but um... yeah, I mean, my my dad was was awesome. I mean, I never had, I really never had bike problems. Um, you know, my bikes were always on point for sure. And then, you know, I think in eighty, I think in eighty two, uh, Honda signed me to their amateur program and obviously at that point in 82 they didn't have a 60 yet so they kind of brought me on board to do all the development work on the on the 83 cr60 cool and um yeah so i actually spent a lot of time doing a lot of testing and whatnot over here um you know just riding you know riding you know 10 hours a day just doing endurance testing and whatnot on, on that bike and, and got that thing ready to go. And, and obviously when it was released, you know, because I was still riding, I was still racing the Yamaha, right? Yeah. The Yamaha YZ60. And then once that was released and I was, you know, I was on a, I was on a, uh, a Honda full time at that point. And that's right about the same time I started riding the eighties as well. Mm-hmm. So I was on, you know, I was a full factory Honda mini bike rider. Uh, which is, you know, it's a lot different than it is today. You know, back then it, you just, you basically got free bikes and parts and you maybe got a little bit of bonus money for like the really big races, like, you know, pocket city, Loretta's and, and world mini and GNC stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, you know, being the full factory amateur kid now and then is, is drastically different, but back then it was awesome, you know, because for us, uh, you know, my parents didn't have to buy bikes and parts anymore, you know, which was, you know, it really lightened the load on them um, and made it a lot more feasible for us to go do as many races as we need to do, right? So that way, what, once that happened, I started, we started traveling to California every single weekend and we would race on, we would drive over on Friday after school was out or, or after my parents got off work. And then we would race Saturday, and then we would also race Sunday in California, then drive back to Arizona on Sunday nights, um, you know, to get back for school and for my folks to uh, get back to work. Um, you know, we did that for, I mean, hell, we did that for, what, nine or ten years before I turned pro. 
and that was basically our our jam that we did uh you know every single weekend of the year well that that's a scenario right there will uh cultivate some pr- a pretty tight-knit family spending a lot of time on the roads and uh um, just like mom driving, your your dad's driving, and uh, just a, a lot of uh, great stories, a lot of great memories, and uh, definitely kind of galvanized you guys as a unit uh, going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and for us, like I'm an only child, so um, my my mom wasn't able to have uh, kids after after me. I kind of broke everything on my way out, um, <laughs> and so you know, it That's was. You know, it was just, you know, it was just the three of us, you know, and, and like I said, we had a dog at one point that went to the races with us. So, you know, the four of us and we just, you know, we went to the races and we did our thing and uh, we raced on the weekends. Everybody went to, you know, I went to school and they went to work during the week and, um, you know, there was no, you know, I, I got out of school a couple of times for, for riding purposes. Um, but for the most part, you know, uh, we never really took off uh, time to miss school or whatever. I mean, school was super important to my folks. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that uh, at the time, you know, when you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, you see all these kids that are missing class all the time. You're like, oh, man, I wish I could do that or whatever. And, you know, thank goodness that my, my parents, you know, didn't uh, subscribe to that way of thinking. You know, because school was really important for them, and and you know, it instilled that in me. And so I, you know, I had to work my butt off in school, and you know, and also back then, my Honda contract, I had to, you know, I had to have a, a high GPA to keep my Honda ride. Um, they don't have I those think, types of rules anymore. <laughs> no, they don't. I I wish that they would, because you know, all these kids that are that are homeschooled, and you know, they're homeschooled from time they're seven or eight years old, which is I think completely crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they end up with no social skills and, you know, I, I don't think they end up, you know, learning how to, well, for, I don't think they learn very much, you know, if, if I'm taking a broad section of it, you know, I, I think that there's, I think there's some things that need to change probably will never happen, but I, I think the factories need to get back to making school a priority. Because when it comes down to it, very few of these kids are are gonna have what it takes to make it all the way. Yeah. You know, even though they believe so and their folks believe so, the the reality is is that unless you end up being a Ricky, a James, uh, a Chad, a Jeremy, or RV, something like that, you're going to have to work afterwards. Yeah, like you that's, retire at 27 years just, old, you get the rest not of enough, that there's, there's not enough money in this sport that you can, you know, it, it's not like you're an NBA guy or, or Major League Baseball guy and you get a big, you know, 50, 60, $70 million contract and $30 million of it's guaranteed. You know, there that doesn't exist. I mean, for you to make $30 million in motocross, you better go win a bunch of championships and a bunch of races. Yeah. And there are very few that that will happen to and the rest of them are going to have to get jobs afterwards. And I think, you know, part of the problem is, you know, these kids just aren't prepared for that. You know, I mean, they're, you know, everyone pumps them up all the time about, you know, they're so great. They're this, they're that, you know, and you're going to be this and you're going to go to Supercross and blah, 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 blah. blah. And, 
And yeah, I mean, a lot of them will make it there, but you know, making it there is one thing. Competing is another. Winning is some, something that very few actually do. And then winning a championship is really, really hard. And, and then winning multiple championships and, and continuing to do that for several years, you know, I mean, is is a you know, it, it's a needle in a haystack. And so I think that you know, all of us, you know, that are involved in the sport need to do a better job of of you know, making sure these kids get an education and, and have something to fall back on um, so that, you know, they can they can live a decent life afterwards because they're going to have a giant letdown at some point, um, you know, because you go from everybody loving you, everyone's giving you stuff, and, you know, make a phone call to your sponsors and you get a box at your house the next day. And um, when that all starts to, to go away, no matter what your situation is, you know, um, it's a bit of a letdown. And, and to be a good motocrosser, you got to be super type A personality and a little crazy. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I just think there's, you know, I think there's a little bit more that can be done. And um, yeah, that's that's my rant for this. I was going to say, there's, there's your soapbox. And I was going to also mention the fact that um, you'd mentioned baseball, football, um, even – uh, well, to a lesser extent, hockey, because you can, uh, when you go to junior hockey, they're not uh, as, as diligent about school and stuff like that. But um, you want to be a professional football player, Nine, 99 point, uh, like 100% of those guys ended up having to go through a college program. And even if like there's a lot of college athletes that you can like, you hear them do an interview and they probably didn't go all to, to all of their classes. But uh, the fact is, is that a lot of those guys have some post-secondary education or at least had to go to high school to play high school football whereas uh yeah. you get kids with race motocross like austin austin uh forkner he's coming out of the, the the uh amateur ranks right now um i don't know like he he might have gone to like grade nine and like honestly like um in, other than being able to do long division i don't know how much that uh really prepares you for uh say if you have an injury or your, your uh, career doesn't work out. We've seen tons of kids yeah. flame out of amateurs and they just like, I'm kids 21 years old. And now I'm like, all, all I am is uh, an athlete that um, like put me to work. I guess I'll do road construction or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with doing yeah. road construction. But um, I think a lot of these guys would, um, would almost kind of would hope, hope more for themselves. Right. Yeah, I know. I think so. You know, and I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what uh, Fortner's uh, background is. You know, I don't really know his folks or, or anything like that. But I, you know, I guess you could, you know, potentially use him as a as an example. I mean, he's he's one of the it kids, right? Yeah. But um, you know, and he's going to come in. He's going to make great money. You know, I've I've heard you know kind of what his contract is with uh, with Kawasaki, and it's good. Three but years. you know. Um, at the same time, I mean, he could get hurt at his very first. I, I wish this upon nobody, clearly. Yeah. But I mean, he could get hurt at his very first race, and his career could be over. Yeah. Or he, or he could get hurt before the career ever takes off. Yeah. And it be over. Um, You'd never want that to yeah, happen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, you never want it to happen. But you, you, you want to at least have something to fall back on. And I, I think that's, I think that's the point more than anything. It's like. None of us want these guys to get hurt. We we all want them all to be successful. The problem is is that there can only be a, a small few that can really be it, and and that's no matter how prepared you are. You can do all the training. You can have the best bike, the best team, the best this, the best that. 
and and your mind be in the right place and everything else and, and you could you really you could have just bad miss luck bad misfortune or whatever and and the the career can spiral out of control and down the tubes fairly quickly um and and you end up with nothing left and so i think that's i mean i think that's my point more than anything is just you know we got to get these kids to, to realize and these and these families to realize too that Yes, you know, it's great to, to back your kids 100%, but, man, like, look out for them at the same time and make sure that they're, you know, they're going to have an education to, uh, to fall back on so they can, you know, at some point uh, go, you know, and really uh, support themselves and, and hopefully they'll have families and be able to support their families properly. Hey, this is Zach Osborne of Rockstar Energy Husqvarna. Uh, we're going to commercial here on Big and Max Radio, and we'll be right back. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You too can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable, sweat-absorbing liner, and generous eye port design to accommodate any goggle choice or just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. X-Racing Man. But more than Fox, what Big Jeff likes is a fat bull. And they go to Brand. Fat bull. And they go to Brand. Oats for power. Brands for speed. Who that tastes, what a delicious treat. Cereal Bees, Emigos. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey, kids, start out every morning with a fat bowl. When it comes to helmets, there is just one. The helmet brand, that is. Just One Helmets is tailor-made for motocross and street bike riding, and now available in North America. Who chooses Just One? Well, for starters, Tim Geiser, winner of the Italian round in MX2, David Philipparts, Vicky Golden, Trevor Reese, as well as David Pulley. And you know what? So do I. I choose Just One Helmets because they are simply the safest, lightest, and most comfortable lid available. Want to know more about Just One Helmets? Check them out on the web at www.justonehelmets.com. Find out about the J12 the J32, and all of the colorways that are absolutely blow your socks off. So guys, please head over to www.justonehelmets.com today. Go check them out. You won't be disappointed. The 2014 X-Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter X 
Volcano and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples and see what it's going to look like on your bike. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys who are building wheels for Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, if they are not told whose wheels are whose, they just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to WBYAUSA.com today. WUSA, all things wheels. What's up, guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance. He's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown full rebuild on your forks or, or shock, call up Roy Borden today at 204-633-2722. Bill's Pipes, the home of legendary performance. Since 1974, Bill's Pipes has been providing motocross and off-road riders the performance they need. Two-stroke or four-stroke, Bill's Pipes has the exhaust system for you. In recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the Bill's Pipes brand, and that's great news. And that's great news for motocross racers everywhere. For four-strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE13 to dominate the fight on any brand. For you two-stroke guys, the MX2 Bill's Pipes exhaust system is the right one for the job and comes in works, nickel, and the all-new cone-look finish that'll turn heads all day long. Head to Bill'sPipes.com right now and get the same pipe used by Billy Leninovich, Vicky Golden, JMR Suzuki team, Jesse Pierce, Nico Izzy, and David Cole. Bill's Pipes is craftsmanship at its finest. So go with Bill's Pipes and never settle. Hey, this is Alex Ray. I don't know why you're listening to Brad's podcast, but I'll be back on soon.
Couldn't agree more. Now uh, let, let's uh, let, let's uh, backtrack back to, uh, to to your amateur days, and uh, you've got quite quite a few amateur national championships at Loretta Lynn's, as well as uh, no doubt uh, knocked down some a, a few at, at Ponca City and many others. But uh, one that kind of stuck out to me when I was kind of researching a few of your results was uh, the nineteen eighty six. 85, 12 to 13 stock class where uh, you were the only one in the top 10 riders to not have recorded an outside the top 10 finish during one of the three motos. Um, Damon Bradshaw went 1-1 DNF. Um, Buddy Antonez went 3-10-2. Jeremy Buell went 10-4-4. Uh, Mike Panko went seven thirteen eight, and you went two nine one for the championship. That was uh, what happened there. <laughs> uh, I, that's that's a great question. Uh, I do remember Damon winning both motos, and I remember the first moto like we battled, but he was right ahead of me, and Damon was the man that year. Yeah. Um, second moto, I don't remember what happened, and in the third moto. Uh, I got a good start and kind of walked away from the thing. And then I had heard after the race is over that Damon ended up getting a flat and pulled off. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I you know, one of those consistent consistency, uh, situations that get you a championship in the end. So what was the landscape like at Loretta Lynn's 1983, four, five, six, it's gotta be a whole lot different than, uh, it is in 14, 15, 16, uh, uh, more people, more uh, bigger rigs, but uh, now, but uh, still a pretty uh, hotly contested um, uh, field all, all the way throughout. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. So my first time I went to Loretta's was 84. Yeah. Um, and we didn't really know much about it, to be totally honest with you. The qualifying procedures, if you lived out in the West, was like really crazy, like, it was you qualified all in one day or all in one weekend. You had to ride two qualifiers, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. Um, and it was funny because I remember that literally there was like 40 people that showed up to the qualifier. Everybody that showed up qualified straight in if they wanted to actually go to the race. Um, and that was like 40 people for like all the classes. So not a lot of people knew about Loretta's at the okay. time. yeah, yeah. And, and or at least on the west coast i think on the east coast it was because i think they started i think their first year was 82 so i think it was more um you know more prevalent on the east coast and plus the ama didn't really run any races on the west coast it was all cmc and nma okay so you know we had to get you know ama race license all these things so it was really just something really new and so after Ponca. You know, we all made the, you know, a bunch of us from Arizona just drove there. We didn't even know what to expect. It was quite funny. So, like myself, Sean Kalos, um, the Bruners, a few other people, we all drove together to to, to Loretta's to kind of see what this whole thing was. And it was super small, but the track was cool. Um, I remember track was being really cool. And the fact that all the races were, were on a time schedule was also really awesome because you knew exactly when your races were going to be. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, you know, I, I had come into that race. Um, uh, I expected to win the 60 class 
because I'd won, I, I think coming into to Loretta's, I had won every single moto of the year on, on my 60. And I I just killed everybody at Ponca the week before. And I went 1-1 DNF because uh, I got a flat tire. I do remember that. And um, it was funny because, so I ended up winning the 80 class. I, you know, ended up doing crappy or whatever in the 60 class. And we go to the awards ceremony and we won the team competition. Our district had won because all of us had won a championship. <laughs> and and we didn't even know we didn't even know what it was. We were all sitting around and, and they started calling all of our names to come up on the stage and we all thought that we got in trouble for something. What did um, you do that you thought you were in trouble for though? Well, I'm, who knows? <laughs> I mean, a bunch of kids a bunch of kids had gotten in trouble for messing around with the with the canoes and stuff okay. and I think like the trouble that like what you used to get in trouble for before would be like no one would even think about it these days. Fair enough. Um, and so they called us up there and they gave us this like this trophy for winning the team championship and we didn't even know that there was a team. We didn't even know we were we were in a region um, because again we weren't you know none of us were yeah. like AMA guys normally. We're so, not a team. <laughs> so it was I mean, it was kind of cool. We were all friends and whatnot, but um, but yeah, that, that was kind of something that stuck out in my head for the first time we went to Loretta's, but. Yeah, the I mean, Reds was always cool, and and obviously it's starting to become more and more important. And, and I think by '87, Honda, Honda had asked us to only do Loretta's and not to do Ponca anymore because they had had a dispute with the NMA or something like that. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean it's you know, kind of old memories or whatever. It's kind of funny. No doubt, and uh, but you were extremely successful as far as uh, Loretta Lynn's going, and and you were a Honda guy uh, through and through, all the way from '84 up to '89. But uh, many a championships, many a motos won, um, and uh, and that kind of set you uh, set you up really good coming into um, into the the pro class. But um, very, uh, it was kind of it's it's not like uh, the transition. Now isn't like it was uh, back then. Now a lot of the top guys uh, they've got a ride, they've got a, a contract for three years of, of, of two fifty uh, riding uh, already set for them for themselves uh, beforehand. But uh, for you, it was uh, for you and many others, it was very different. Yeah, I I got screwed. Like let's that, we can we can be perfect we can be perfectly clear on that. I got one hundred percent like absolutely screwed so i rode for honda basically my entire amateur career yeah. and when i was done racing amateurs i at the time you know they weren't really it wasn't like today where everyone counts every single moto and every this and every that and all this stuff but at the time i was the most successful amateur racer that had ever lived and had i lived today I would have had a multi-year factory ride making several hundred thousand dollars a year, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, you know, had I been riding for Yamaha or Suzuki or Kawasaki at the time, I would have gotten a factory ride. And so, for you know, my last year was 89 as an amateur. So I would have had a factory ride for 1990 just like Emig did, just like Buddy Antonez did, just like a lot of the guys did. Um but I was riding for Honda, and Honda made a drastic change before the 1990 season that they weren't going to hire any young kids anymore. And so I got the shaft basically on, 
uh, on Halloween night, uh, because obviously, you know, the next day is the first of November. So, uh, I got the phone call saying, Hey, you know, that deal that you were going to get is no longer on the table. And, you know, I, I don't hold any grudges now, but I mean, it sucks going from being a factory guy, your whole amateur career, winning everything, being the guy to beat. And then, Honda doing what they did and what really sucked about the whole thing is the fact that they didn't even give me any bikes for 1990 or parts or a discount or anything. They basically said, we're pulling all your support. Go figure it out yourself. And we're not going to help you at all. That's wild. You won all six motos that year at 89 in uh, Loretta's. Almost nobody did, did that. James Stewart didn't even do that. I don't even think Ricky Carmichael did that. Yeah, I mean, I was. I think I was actually the first person to ever go six for six yeah. at that point. Um, and yeah, and so I got totally shafted, which you know, it kind of is what it is. And um, you know, and I'd, I'd gone on and I'd rode Millville and I'd rode uh, Washougal and I actually got a top ten at Washougal at my second outdoor national. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, I, I wasn't a chump. It wasn't like I was horrible or, or whatever. And uh, so, anyways, they they. We, we had to figure something out, right? Um, because Anaheim, you know, we, I was going to ride West Coast, obviously, living in Phoenix. So we, uh, we really had no idea what we were going to do. Again, we weren't a wealthy family um, by any stretch of the imagination. And so buying, you know, buying bikes that were, you know, two or $3,000 a piece was tough, you know, really, really tough for us. Um, especially the fact that we weren't prepared for it at all. And uh, I was actually riding for AXO at the time. Uh, and Jim Hale, who owned AXO, who now owns Mechanics Wear, called me up uh, right around the first of the year and said, hey, I have a brand new CR125 that uh, Mitch did the cylinder and head and Bones did the suspension got a pipe and silencer on it. If you want, I'll, I'll give you this thing so you can go ride Supercross. So we drove over here to California. We picked it up, and that bike became my practice bike and my race bike. And I, uh, and I showed up at Anaheim um, in 1990, having never ridden a Supercross track in my life. You know, again, things were very different than they, than they are today. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, I had only seen two Supercrosses in person. Again, everything, you know, obviously the TV package back then was very bizarre. Um, and I, again, I had not, you know, I'd been to one Anaheim Supercross and I'd been to a Phoenix Supercross. And that's the only time I'd ever seen a Supercross track in person. Um, and so we showed up and, you know, I miraculously, I ended up on the podium that night for my first race. Yeah, beat out Ty Davis and a bunch of other Californian guys. Uh, the, yep. the only other uh, and, and, Arizona guy in the, in the, the class was uh, Brian Pryor. Yeah, and I probably could have won the race, but I actually cased a jump and busted my balls pretty bad. Oh. Um, <laughs> and there's a funny, my mom actually has a photo of me on the podium holding my trophy up, and I'm this little skinny 16-year-old kid 
And uh, you could tell I just busted my nuts by the look on my face. It's quite funny. Yeah, I don't um, want to be stretching out right now. I'd like to be just yeah. nursing this back to health. Exactly. And But I mean, it was pretty rad to, to get on the podium, especially at your first race. Yeah. But, I mean, I knew I could do it. I mean, I was, I, was, I was a good rider. I was talented. You know, I had a lot of fight in me or whatnot. And, um, and so we went, to, uh, we went to the next race, which is in Houston the next weekend. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, in practice, my ignition started to go south on us. And obviously, again, we didn't have any extra parts or whatever. So we went over to the Honda truck trying to get an ignition for the bike. And obviously, they don't have any because they're running factory stuff. And, you know, so they couldn't give me a factory ignition. So I had to try to ride a, a 125 in Supercross with the ignition going out. And you, you could probably uh, you could probably figure out how that went, and I, I wasn't even able to I wasn't even able to qualify for the main because bike was running so bad. Um, so that was a bummer. You go from third place in a championship, thinking, okay, man, you know, if things go okay, I might be able to contend for this thing my first year. But you know, again, circumstances didn't allow that, and you know, we came back home, and you know, I had some events I struggled at. I, I made the podium, I think, uh, two or three more times. And, you know, I was on the podium during the East-West shootout. And um, so I had a, you know, I had an okay first season. You know, I think, two, or th- like I said, two or three podiums, maybe, something like that. And, um, you know, had some good races and showed some promise. And then, you know, also had some rookie maneuvers. And I, you know, rode like crap at a few races. So, um, but again, you know, doing it all out of our, all out of our van and basically I'm racing against all the factory guys. I mean, I think I, I held my own pretty well. And, uh, you know, the next, that off season got a call from DGY and they were, you know, they had partnered up with Yamaha to have like a, uh, you know, a satellite 125 team and I ended up signing with those guys. Uh, and, and just before that decided to hop on a 500 for two nationals, where's your head out there? Well, um, <laughs> The reason why we did it is just, you know, riding a 125 at the Outdoor Nationals, you know, you had to change the piston and ring a lot, and you had to change clutches and tires and all this stuff. And, again, we, we didn't have any cash, yeah. so we started looking at it. It's like, well, you know, you could ride a 500. Stop. You won't have to change, you won't have to change the, the piston and ring for the entire series. You know, I mean, this is how we had to look at it from a financial perspective. Yeah. Um, so we're like, Hey, you know, we won't have to change the clutch at all. It'll be super cheap. Um, you know, we could probably run tires for two races. Like, you know, we, we had to look at it that way. So, um, uh, you know, cause I had to give the, uh, I had to give that bike back to Jim. And so we, uh, we went and we went and got a loan for, you know, for three grand or whatever it was. And, and I bought a, I bought a CR 500 and, you know, Mitch gave me a pipe and silencer, which, uh, which ended up being a little bit too barky for me. So we put the stock one back on with just some, uh, you know, some suspensions work done. And I rode a CR 500 for the first two races. That's incredible. And I'm thinking of this is literally the exact same, might have been the exact same year that uh, Shane Drew was riding 500s in Canada and getting those bikes for free and then selling them at the end of the year. And um, on his, like uh, and at the time, Jimmy Button is, is, is faced with this, the same deal that Brad Gemmard gets on bikes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Which is not there at you all. Go. So, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is what it is, and yeah. you know, like I said, it it, uh, it turns you into the person that you are, you know, down the road and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, so it was a fun experience. I, I actually rode pretty good at the first couple races, which was kind of cool. Yeah, um, and I remember I, at Washougal, um, I passed Ricky Johnson going up the hill, and it was such a surreal moment, like in my career that. Um, this guy that I had put up on such a massive pedestal my entire life that for one, I was on a track with him. And number two, that I at some point had the actual speed in me to pass him during a race. So that was a, that was a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool experience for me for sure. No doubt. And, uh, and certainly one that you, you carry forward with you, but, uh, so 80, uh, 91 rolls around. And like you said, DGY comes calling and it's time to, uh, switch brands, which, uh, you did so for, for quite some time. You were on, uh, you're on Suzuki's for the, or for or on Yamaha's for the next two years. And, uh, you were pretty successful. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, the 91 Yamaha 125 was pretty much a dog. Yeah. Um, the only one that was good was Jeff's factory bike, and it was because it had some Honda parts on it, some Suzuki parts on it. I mean, it was like a hodgepodge of, of whatever, the but the thing ripped. It had all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, and so the bike was, it was really, really hard to ride the bike just because it didn't have a lot of power. And I had, I had a lot of mixed results uh, in Supercross that year. I, I won a couple heat races. I was on the podium a, a few times. Um, I think I actually podiumed the East-West race again, I think, yeah. something like that. Um, Those are always interesting, and they're going to do that again this year for the, the shootout, which is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is cool. Um, so, yeah, kind of a mixed result. And then Yamaha at the end of 91 – uh, decided to like give uh, to really give DGY like real support. So we got factory motors for '92, which was I mean it it was literally like going from driving uh, a Prius to a Ferrari. Yeah. It was it was it was that big of a drastic change for that bike, and and my results showed it. You know I won I won uh, a couple of races. I should have won a couple more, but. Um, I had a pair of pro tapers actually break off on a, on a face of a jump. Um, and I ended up second in the championship behind Swink in, in 92. Um, and again, had some good races, had some mixed races outdoors, but, uh, still rode okay. And, um, and then, you know, halfway through the, the 92 season, Suzuki King Collin, and uh and offered me you know offered me a full factory ride for two years um which which was uh which was great i mean you know it was it was pretty cool that at that point like all my expenses were going to be paid for i was going to get paid a salary get paid factory bonuses and um and i was still going to be able to go do a gear deal and helmet deal and boot deal and everything and actually make a real living for the first time um riding dirt bikes, which was pretty awesome. No doubt. Like who, who was the first person you called after getting the news or, uh, uh, being approached by Suzuki? Um, like was there, was there much, much hesitation in taking the deal and, or did you can confer? I'm sure you and your dad probably, uh, talked long and hard about this one before, uh, uh, pulling the trigger. 
I actually, I actually, at the time, I wanted to ride for Cowie. Okay. And I've been talking, I've Thanks been talking to them a little, I've been talking to them a little bit. Well, no, they, they hadn't, um, uh, they hadn't switched to, Mitch hadn't switched to Cowie yet. They were still on Hondas. Okay, yeah. And so I was talking to factory Cowie about being on the factory team riding the factory 125. Um, and I was really, 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 I really wanted that ride. I thought that the bike was, would have suited me really well. Um, but for whatever reason, we couldn't put it together. So obviously we, uh, you know, the only other factory deal opportunity I had, I could have stayed at DUI, but, um, I wanted to be on a factory team and I wanted to get paid. So I took the deal with, uh, with Suzuki and, and it was great. I mean, I, I had really good bikes. Um, you know, I thought the bikes were good. Bikes are fast, um, you know, good suspension and, and whatnot and everything. And I really went into, I went into the 93 season after finishing second behind Swink in, in 92, you know, I, I should have been the guy to beat. And, um, you know, the week, uh, the first race at Orlando started really well, won my heat race by a mile. And in the main event, I had an awkward crash and no, nope, not big deal. Ended up having to work my way back up. I think I got fifth or something like that the first round. And, yeah. um, no, no, no biggie really wasn't, wasn't even stressed about it. And then at the second race in Houston, um, like the third or fourth lap of the main event, I was in second, Jimmy Gaddis was leading. And my grip came off before I hit the face of the triple. That's not good. And uh, yeah, not good. And I <laughs> I hit the ground really hard. I actually broke my neck, which no one ever knew about. Wow! And then uh, like sh- right after that, like I'm I'm surprised that you would uh, in this uh, you would continue on with a, a, a couple of two fifty rounds before heading back east um, to uh, with, with a broken neck. Well, yeah, we didn't know. Like, I just, I had a stiff neck for, for like, a few weeks. It wasn't bad. It was just, like, stiff and sore. Um, and then, so we, I rode I rode a couple of the 250 rounds the, the next few weeks because they were West Coast races. I was riding the East Coast. And I ended up breaking, uh, I ended up breaking my collarbone, like, two months later. And so, you know, and they're like, well, we're going to x-ray your neck. And when they x-rayed my neck, they're like, oh. You got a fracture that just got finished healing. Yeah. Like, oh well, I know where that came from. So, yeah, kind of crazy. No kidding. Uh, so, how was it? How were your '93 uh, Suzuki's? Uh, especially, I, I, like from what I've heard, the 250 left a little bit to be desired, but uh, the the, ni- the '93 125, that thing uh, could could really turn. It was it was ultra 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 fast especially the factory bike i mean i would say that for sure we probably we probably for sure had the best bikes in 93 94 um and the bikes were quick i mean i was big i was a big big kid I and mean, i was like 160 pounds you know and i was i was still able to do you know back then if you could do the triple on a 125 you know you were like part of the elite crowd yeah. Because um, there was only ever a handful of us that could ever do it, and I was—I think at almost every race I was able to do the triples. So that was, um, you know, that was a key ingredient for sure. 
No doubt. So uh, 93 comes and goes. You get the broke. You come off, come off the broken collarbone. You're able to finish off the the series outdoors uh, at Broome, and then uh, 94 rolls around, and uh, you're even more successful than you were in 93. Uh, you stay away from the injury bug, but you, of course you meet uh, the great uh, Ezra Lusk in Supercross. Yeah, we uh, you know we were teammates. We were really good friends uh, away from the track as well. And we were battling uh, for that championship. You know, Ezra got off to a really hot start. His starts were really, really good that year. And my starts were lacking a little bit, for sure. Um, My fitness was great. Um, Everything was fine for me. I just, I I got bad starts that year for whatever reason. Um, And, you know, and Ezra, you know, he caught fire right from the beginning. I think he won the first three rounds. And, uh, and that's, you know, it put me in a little bit of a hole and I was, I think I was like two, 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 the first few races. And so, you know, I had some ground to make up and, you know, I won Daytona, won Charlotte and we went into the, uh, the next to last round in, in Minneapolis, you know, we were pretty close in points at that point And, um, our team manager sat us down and just told us like, don't run into each other. Don't do this. Don't do that. And of course that didn't happen in Maine. You know, we hit each other, and I ended up uh, getting bounced off of the track, and he ended up winning the race, and I got fourth, and and the points gap was screwed after that. And so, you know, I went into the last race in Dallas, and I I had to win the race, and I think Ezra had to get like a fifth or a sixth. And I I got, you know, finally got a halfway decent start in Dallas. I think I started fourth or fifth, whatever, made, made my way to the front, I think, by like lap two. And it was an east-west race, which was cool because I knew I had some fast guys that could maybe get in between us. But uh, obviously that didn't happen. I think the podium was all three Suzukis. It was myself, Damon, and Ezra. And, uh, you know, I won the race, but uh, Ezra ended up getting third. He won the championship. And uh, hats off to him. You know, he, he rode a better, stronger, more consistent championship than I did. And I, I made... I made a couple of mistakes during the during the season, and you know it uh, it cost me the points I needed to win the championship. But you know, at the time, it was nice to have won my last 125 Supercross race that I was ever going to ride. Um, you know, kind of go out feeling good about that, and headed off into the outdoors. And I was riding 250 outdoors that year, and I had a, a decent season. I think I, I I only ended up on the podium once. Uh, I think at Binghamton. Yeah, but uh, I had a good season and things were looking really, really good for me. We were, I was talking to Suzuki about uh, doing a two-year deal with him for 95 and 96 to ride big bikes. Um, and uh, unfortunately for me, uh, part of the contingency was that uh, Greg Albertine didn't win the, the world championship and um Greg won it, and so it left. It gave him an automatic ride over here, and you know, left me uh, left me with no ride. So, wow! So that's uh, that, that's a, a terrible way to end the the '94 season. And uh, before before yeah. we, we leave that season, I went I, I went ahead and did a little bit of extra research as far as that 250 series, the 125 series goes, because I feel like that was um, honestly like you're like a championship that uh, you, you left on the table, uh, and I wanted to figure out why. And uh, the the reason why I kind of uh, you mentioned your starts were off point. 
but uh, you'd probably be interested to know that your average lap or your average uh, position on first lap during that series was uh, eighth place. So uh, not a great way. I, to I, was, I was gonna say I was gonna say ninth. Yeah. So yeah, close. And and Ezra's probably his average was like one point five or something. Something like that. Honestly, he had uh, I believe out of uh, it was a seven races he had four five hole shots five hole shots. Yeah. So, he he was he was awesome that year. I mean, I, again, hats off to him. He he rode good. His starts were good. He was consistent. He made very little mistakes. And you know, in the end, that's that's how you win a title. Um, you know, and I had to come through the path a lot that year, which sucked. But um, yeah, so we a nice time get played up uh, up on the mantle. That's for sure. No doubt. Well, well maybe uh, I could uh, make up make up a, a bigger trophy for second place in the championship, and that might like <laughs> at least the op- the optics wise might look like you you might have won something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so in '95, uh, like uh, right around uh, the, the the tail end of the '94 season, as you were boarding a plane over to Europe, did you see Greg Albertine in the airport at all when he was heading here? No, no. I mean, it's uh, you know the way my whole '95 thing came to be was pretty funny, actually. I uh, Suzuki was actually really cool about you know they were they were open about everything, which was fine. I mean, it totally sucked, right? I'm not gonna say it was cool um it sucked to lose my ride the way that i did especially after having such a good season both indoors and outdoors again in 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 today's marketplace it would never happen like that right right Uh, doing what i did i would have i would have for sure had a ride long before the season was over um but uh suzuki was really cool and no i needed i was going to go over and do a bunch of european supercrosses barcelona bercy and uh, Gen- uh, Genoa, Geneva, a few others, and they they said, yeah, you you can take a factory motor, you can take your factory suspension, your brakes, your foot pegs, like your triple clamps, your linkage, you can take everything, and and we'll actually uh, we'll actually send your mechanic with you. So uh, so that was really cool, you know, because uh, it really helped me out. And so I went to I went to Barcelona Supercross and. Uh, I almost won Barcelona. I think Jeremy and Henry were one and two, and then went to Bercy, got on the podium again. And uh, again, I, I was I was kind of pissed because I was like, "Fuck, man!" Mm-hmm. Like here I am, I'm riding a 250 in Supercross, which I hadn't really done before, except for you know a, a race here or there. And I'm racing against Jeremy and all the guys, all the main guys, um, and. You know, I'm like, I, I, I should be in the U.S. I should be in the U.S. riding 250s next year, racing with these guys. And so I was working on a deal with, uh, uh, with uh, Phil Alderton from Honda Troy. Okay. And, um, and Jeremy was actually really pushing for me on the Honda side to get Honda to, to support Honda Troy even more to help me get out on the team. And then at one stage, there was even a little bit of life to put me on the factory Honda team to be alongside Jeremy and Lammy and, and, uh, and Henry. A four-man team. And that, yeah, and that kind of it, it fizzled out a little bit. But, uh, you know, there, there was, had been a glimmer of hope on that at some stage. Wow. But unfortunately, you know, by mid-November, everything had kind of fizzled out. And I had a I had factory Honda in Europe come to me and offer me a ride, you know, and it was um, it was a good ride making a boatload of money. 
uh, riding 125 Grand Prix. So I took I took their offer and I came home back to the states and I held on to the offer until oh man it must have been the week before Christmas um, and I had to make a decision and so I I decided to sign the contract and go to uh, go to Europe for 95. So, uh, what were the stipulations of the contract as far as where you'd be living? Uh, did you get to bring a mechanic with you? And uh, once you headed over there, uh, life's a whole lot different because this is pre-internet, pre the Euro yeah. Europe, and uh, you're heading all over pre, the world. Pre, pre cell phone, pre everything. Yeah. Um, so uh, I didn't get my mechanic. Um, I got an apartment near our workshop that the that was in my contract, so I didn't have to pay for a living, which is awesome. Um, and the team I rode for was really great. <clears throat> we lived in a little town called Kivaso, which is just outside Torino, uh, which is where Fiat is uh, headquartered. And uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, the team, their their family owned the local supermarket and they also owned the gym. So obviously I got, you know, got to go get fresh produce and food and got the, a, a great gym to work out at. And our, and our workshop was just, you know, like, I think it was probably, uh, it was like a kilometer and a half away from my house. So I, w- I could just ride my bicycle over to the race shop every day. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, I mean it was it was uh, it was good. I mean we had uh, we had good bikes. Oh, those bikes. The unfortunate were great, thing, the 95, uh, yeah, the, Hondas. Yeah, the unfortunate thing though was that was the first year that they went to the green fuel, the unleaded fuel. Oh, okay. And oh. so we, um, I, I think everybody struggled with it. Um, but you know we we blew up a lot of engines that year. Um, you know, and I, I DNF quite a few motos just from engine failures and whatnot. I nothing it wasn't the team's fault. It was just you know, everyone was trying to figure out what that what that limit was that you could go with compression and whatnot and keep the thing together. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had a good season. Uh, I was on the podium a bunch, and I ended up fourth in the championship, which was uh, which was pretty good. And uh, I had a contract to ride for um, for Factory Yamaha for '96 over in Europe. Um, and so I came home and went to the last outdoor national. And in doing that, um, I I had seen the um, the guys from Yamaha, and they had heard that you know I had this contract, and they said, hey, you know, if you want to ride, you know, if you want to ride the first few Supercrosses, we'll provide you a bike. Um, so it got me thinking about Supercross again because I really had kind of like dismissed coming back to America. I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm making a great living in in Europe. You know, I got fourth in the world championship. You know, it. I was thinking about, you know, obviously I had a contract to, you know, I hadn't signed it yet, but I had a contract to go back and stay and, and fight for a world title in the 125 class in 96 on, on a really good bike. And it really kind of got those thoughts going. And um, I ended up talking to Yamaha some more. And, and then they, and they also said, well, if you, if you want to come back here, we can't put you on the factory team because it's full, but we can, we can give you a bike, some parts and bonuses and, uh, and all this stuff, and it kind of rekindled the relationship that we had, you know, four years earlier. Yeah. Um, and that really got me thinking. I went back to Europe. I did a couple more. I did a couple of international, you know, off-season races, and and um, I made the decision to come back here, and uh, that's when I I did my deal and with uh, Extreme and the PJ One guys and Burnsville Yamaha and. 
um, started, uh, you know, our own race team and, um, you know, that's what put me back in the U.S. So you're back in the U.S. You're getting uh, Anthony Paggio to spin wrenches for you. And, uh, yep. Oh, it wasn't Patch? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Padge just uh, spinning, uh, spinning uh, wrenches for you. Um, and uh, it, who, who, it was Keeney on the team as well? Yeah, Keeney was on the team. Mathis actually wrenched for Keeney and yeah. then Kalos. Yeah, and Kalos. So uh, it was pr- pretty, uh, pretty fast bunch of guys. Really cool bikes. Like to this day, there's people who uh, try and recreate that look. And, and um, you guys really kind of the bike. Like, the bike was cool. The helmets yeah. were cool. Like we we looked pretty good. Um, I don't think too many people realize what a shit show it was behind the scenes. <laughs> but uh, but it was. Uh, you know, it was, uh, we had fun, and, and, you know, like I said, we, I had a mixed bag of results. We had a lot of issues team-wise and whatnot that really, um, that really put a damper on what the results were, could have been, and whatnot, but, you know, I, I, I had some, some good flashes of brilliance, and that's what got me signed to the Chaparral team for 97, and that's what really got me back, completely back on track, was when I signed with those guys. Sure. So, uh, '97. Uh, how much of, uh, of a proponent was uh, was McGrath, uh, your your teammate that year, in, in getting you on the team? I know the two of you guys were were good friends. Well, so no, so '90. So for '97, Jeremy was riding. Remember, that's when he switched over oh, to Suzuki. Suzuki. So right, I was riding. Right. So you're there first. So I was riding for Chaparral in '97, and there was like five of us on the team. That's right. Um, Including like Larry Phil Lawrence, Michael Brandis, uh, Chad Pedersen. Uh, I forget who else was on the team that year. And I was the only one that ended up having results. Everybody was just like all over the place, terrible results. And well, wasn't that the uh, year that everyone was riding different bikes too? No, that was the year before. Okay. When they were in a, they were in like a fifth wheel trailer. This was the first year that they had like a semi and did it properly. And so my team manager at the time, Larry Brooks, uh, I was talking to him about 98, the 98 season, what they were going to do. And they're like, Hey, you know, we're cutting the team back down. We're, this is just going to be a two man, 250 team for next year. He's all, and obviously we want you on the team. He's all, but we want to get, you know, we want to get somebody else on team. And, and, uh, Jeremy and I were roommates at the time. And so he asked me, he's all, Hey, he's all, what would it take to, to get Jeremy on the team? I'm like, well, I go for one, you're going to have to get a factory bike from Yamaha. Um, and, and I go, you're going to have to have one gigantic check. Um, and he's like, well, can you find out how big the check would need to be? So I'm like, yeah, I'll find out. So I, I went home that night and I asked Jeremy and he was, you know, obviously he was not real happy being on the Suzuki. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is before Supercross is even over. And so, um, Jeremy said, well, hey, it would take at least this much and a full works bike with bonuses and everything else. So I went to Larry. I said, hey, this is what he wants. I go, can you guys pull this off with Yamaha? Because this would be awesome. I mean, we were best friends and roommates. And I'll do this would be amazing. Me and him be on the same team. We'd kill it. And uh, so, you know, they, they went to Yamaha. Yamaha signed off on it pretty quick. And then it was on Jeremy's plate to decide whether he was going to ride for go back to Honda or if he's going to ride for Yamaha. And uh, obviously, we all know the decision he made. And um, we started getting ready for the 98 season. It was, you know, it was awesome. I mean, I didn't get a factory bike from Yamaha. I just, I 
got a bike that was built by Chaparral, but um, uh, it was good, man. I had good suspension and the motor was good, and we, uh, you know, we had a pretty great year in '98, and I, I ended up jumping back down on the 125 to ride outdoors. Yeah, and uh, it had a, you know, had a, had a fairly decent season. Um, and yeah, I mean, 98 ended up being pretty good, super fun. We had a great time, especially during Supercross. Um, you know, I think there was one point during the season, I think around the time that we got to, uh, by the time we got to Tampa, I think it was, that Jeremy was leading the points, Wyndham was second, and I was third. And the three of us had gone one, two, three on the podium, I think, twice in the previous, like, three or four races. Yeah, San Diego, Indianapolis, um, and, uh, and Atlanta. Like, you're a couple Atlanta, of, yeah. three top Yeah, top and, you, and so, like, the, the, vibe, the vibe at Yamaha and at the test track and, like, around the pit area, I mean, dude, it was electric. Um, you know, and we were, we were crazy kids. I mean, if you came over to the Chaparral rig, there was crazy rap music playing all the time and... You know, and, and we were just having fun. I think it really got into a lot of people's heads that we were having so much fun racing and everybody was so serious and we were kicking their asses every weekend. Um, and good bikes. Which, you know, it'll, yeah, I mean, it'll ruin somebody. And so we were, hell, man, we were just having fun and doing well and we were training hard and enjoying everything about what we were doing. And um, things are good. And then, you know, I got the phone call from Yamaha, uh, during the outdoor season, wanting to know if I wanted to ride the factory bike. Uh, and, and, and because, you know, Doug had already announced that he was going to retire. And so they wanted me to come on board to ride the, the factory four stroke, which, you know, as we all know, is the decision. That's the direction we ended up going. That thing was badass, and obviously a guy who uh, a decade earlier uh, was developing uh, a, um, the, the Honda, the, the 60, uh, you must have had a lot of uh, experience doing some R&D work, and uh, it's kind of like a, almost like a duck in water as far as uh, developing a bike and, and feeling confident on that. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we definitely did, um, we did a lot of laps on that thing, and it was um i'm looking back at it now compared to what these guys are riding today i mean it was a pile of crap it was so you know it was so heavy uh it was like a light switch with the power i at the time it was fine right but now you look at like how good the four stroke is because back then you just thought well it's a four stroke that's just the temperament of a four stroke that's how four strokes run that's how four strokes will be um, but you know, the bikes now are just so awesome compared to what that thing was. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's good. I mean, I, I have that bike. I have one of the bikes. I have a full factory bike at my house. The Yamaha actually gave me for my 30th birthday, wow. um, which is, which is pretty cool. No doubt. And it's, and it's funny because you look at it and at the time, I mean, and it's still bitching, right? Cause it's still titanium, carbon fiber, billet aluminum. I mean, it's, it's the bike is awesome, but it weighs like 250 pounds. Wow! And that's Steel the factory one. I mean, it, it, all that. Oh, dude, it's a it's a tank. I mean, it was back when the when there was oil in the in the in the frame. The frame, yeah. Obviously, we obviously we didn't run it that way. We we ran it just with the oil in the engine, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's quite funny to to look at the differences now and. 
and see the development, how far the uh, the, the foreshore technology has come in the last 15 years. Wow. So, uh, like, um, did, what kind of engine failures or bike failures did you come across uh, while developing that bike? Um, you know, the thing that we had the biggest problem with was second and third gear. Uh, I remember, remember at Anaheim, uh, it locked up to the whoops and in, like underneath my bike was like a pile of metal, like that was down, like on the track. Oh, wow. And it just, it just, you know, I, I shot a lot of, uh, a lot of transmissions out the bottom of the, uh, of the, uh, of the cases, that's for sure. I don't really, really remember what the reason was, but I think we had a couple of bad gears, and and once it started to come apart, I mean, it would just the whole thing would just implode. So, so uh, the the four stroke was kind of the movement. Did you at this time? Did you kind of know that this is where our sport is going? Uh, that like eventually these things are going to be uh, just like you like the uh, two stroke won't be able to uh, compete with it. No, not at all. Like because the four stroke was really hard to ride in Supercross. Yeah, um, and so I always thought that there would just be two two modes, right? Like I thought that everybody would eventually end up riding uh, a two stroke in Supercross and ride four stroke in outdoors. And and I think if you remember, you know, back a few years after I was done racing when Tim Ferry was on the Yamaha team with, uh, with Reedy and yep. with Villeman, you know, those guys, those guys rode a, a, a two stroke in supercross and rode four strokes outdoors. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that mode of thinking until the four stroke got a lot better for, uh, for supercross. I mean, that was, you know, that was a better way to go. Um, but then the, the four strokes just got so good and they figured out how to get the things carbureted and whatnot is when everybody was really able to make that transition really smoothly. So at the end of, uh, towards the end of 99, uh, both you and that bike started to really click and, uh, you basically finished off the, 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 that season with uh, a string of podiums, including a victory at, uh, at Washougal, um, at a place where, uh, traction is at a minimum and, uh, you really got to uh, fight the shadows and, and be good all the way around the track. I've watched this race, uh, probably 10 times or so, but, uh, it was your day, man. You, you were, you were on it and, uh, the, uh, the number 10 was out front and styling. Yeah, it was uh, it was a good day. I, I was riding really good. The bike was working good. It had taken me, it had taken me, you know, eight nine months to really learn how to ride the bike correctly. And I know that sounds crazy to people now, but you know, to the kids these days, I mean, they they just go from an eighty to a two fifty F. So you learn how to ride the four stroke really really early. Yeah. Um, but it had taken a while for me to, to ride it consistently well. Uh, I would have days, you know, I would have days where I would ride the thing really, really great, and then days I'd ride it really bad. And um, it had taken a while to ride it consistently good all the time. And, yeah, I mean, Washougal was great. And then, you know, the next four races, you know, I was battling for, for the win at every single moto uh, from there on out. Yeah. Um, and it was good. We finished off. We finished off the '99 season really, really strong. And then I did, um, I did three or four uh, European races, and one Japanese race. And I won all the European races I did. And then I got second to Jeremy in Japan in Osaka um, just before Christmas. 
It was really was you know the the 2000 426 was a, a much improved motorcycle over the 400, and uh, was really looking forward to the season, and, and really looking forward to um, to just staying consistent in Supercross riding well. I knew I was not on a bike to compete for the championship, um, and I knew race wins would also be difficult. Podiums were were realistic, you know, a, a realistic weekly accomplishment, and so I just wanted to get through Supercross, uh, get through Supercross, and stay healthy. You know, I started the first couple of races off with like a fifth and a sixth at the first two Anaheim races, and. You know, we went to San Diego uh, with the same game plan. You know, let's have some good practices, feel comfortable on the bike, and go out and have some good good results. And, you know, unfortunately, just, um, you know, we had a little little tiny problem in the, in the second practice there and went on my head the wrong way and, you know, broke my neck and paralyzed me. Yeah, that, and um, I guess that, that you, you're – unbelievable career comes to a uh an absolute halt but uh leading into the series i gotta imagine like like you said uh it took you a long time to get used to the four stroke but you were used to the bike um supercross was getting better on it and uh, you're rolling into a season where uh, you and uh that roommate of yours jeremy were uh, looking to be pretty successful and uh one of the questions i had was uh the fact that um Carmichael turned to 250s uh, in Supercross in 99 and went back down to 125s for the outdoors. But um, 2000, he was he was coming out and, and he was basically looking to – everyone was thinking uh, he's going to uh, be supremely successful in 2000 uh, for Supercross. Um, you were pretty close with Jeremy at the time. Like, uh, How much of a threat did, did, did Jeremy see uh, Ricky at the time? And uh, he was actually able to, uh, to, to carry that forward and get another championship before, uh, before uh, Ricky uh, put the smackdown on everybody. But uh, what was the mood going I, in in 2000? I don't think anybody looked at Ricky after his 99 Supercross season as a real threat. Yeah, that's easy. Um, you know, we knew that we knew that he would be fast on occasion and be, you know, and be up there. But I don't think anybody thought of him for the 2000 season to be a threat for for much of anything, right? Because I think he only won Daytona that year. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, on the ground and, a lot. Yeah, I mean, he was small. He certainly wasn't as fit as he ended up getting. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, no one, I, I don't, you know, I think the people that, you know, we looked at, at the, you know, the Yamaha camp, we looked at, um, you know, Jeremy, Villeman, Wyndham, and Lusk as being the guys, right? Like, those were, those are guys, if, if you want to beat and win, those are the guys that you're going to have to go beat to win. Um and so, yeah, I mean, Ricky wasn't really in that conversation. Um, I think, you know, once Ricky got some podiums in Supercross and those started to become a bit more commonplace in the 2000 season, um, you know, and then obviously he, he, you know, he ended up winning the 250 outdoor title that year. So I think for 2001, people knew that he was the real deal at that point. He had finally figured out how to ride a bigger bike and figured out how to be consistent on it. And so people knew, like, okay, like, we knew it was going to take Ricky a little while, and now he's finally figured it out. So, yeah, he's going to be one of the guys. Um, did anybody think that he was going to win 13 races and no one? I don't think so. No. 
that was that was incredible. Like it's uh that that run there was it was absolutely um awe-inspiring and uh all the meanwhile uh jimmy button is uh is, is is in some pretty intense recovery um right after your injury uh what what was the uh what were the days and, and months like uh after after an injury that uh had you um pretty that that that's got to shake a guy up a pretty good yeah they sucked ass <laughs> That's exactly what they were, um, you know, because initially, you know, the the doctors had come in and said, hey, like, this is, like, you have zero chance. Like, you're going to be a quadriplegic your, the rest of your life, um, and you need balls. to get your house, and, and you need to get your house ready for wheelchair uh, accessibility. Um, you need to know that you're not going to be able to use your hands or anything. Someone's got to feed you and bathe you and all these other things for the rest of your life. And so that's a pretty crazy pill to swallow or try to at least. Um, but, you know, I was very blessed and very fortunate that I had good people around me and it kept me pretty positive and, and motivated the whole time and never let me get down on myself, which was a huge part of the reason why I think I had a recovery that I did. Um, and, Obviously, too, like one day, you know, a couple months after the accident, um, one of my fingers started to work, you know, and um, the doctors kind of shrugged it off, but I thought it was something. And, you know, uh, I, again, being very blessed like I was, things just really started to progress and I started to heal um, and I started to get movement back and a little bit of sensation back and this, that, and the other thing. And. Obviously, you know, uh, over a period of time, you know, I, I got back probably, you know, 80 or 90 percent of, of movement and function. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a total blessing. And uh, like I said, I'm just very, very fortunate that, uh, you know, that I, I was able to, to have a second chance at, uh, at living a, you know, somewhat reasonably normal life. Unbelievable! Like, uh, what was it like for you as like these things start to come back a little bit? Once it's a, a finger, then it's it's this, and then it's that. Uh, at any point, did you look at some of those uh, those doctors that said, uh, "Hey, uh, um, uh, you've got no chance"? That uh, I'd like to see your paperwork or maybe a few of those uh, those diplomas that you have because uh, we got miracles happening over here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. I I I walked. Uh, so I, I went to Sharps Hospital in San Diego right after I got hurt. That's where they took me to. Yeah. And so a year after my accident, I actually walked into the hospital, and I wasn't it wasn't pretty at the time. You know, my walk was really really bad. But I walked into the hospital and found the doctor. I said, "Man, I go, you need to not be such a dick to people, and try to give them a little bit of hope because the way you the way you acted, and I understand the the reason why they do it. Yeah." But like, man, you gotta you gotta at least let people like have some hope, you know, because you you tried to extinguish all of my hope. And when you look at me, yeah, I'm not great, but I am able to move on my own. And you know, um, maybe next time, just thinking about it a little bit differently. Totally. And um, so, like, you moved forward. You, you became better and better with with uh, with your uh, with your walking. And uh, now, like, honestly, uh, to to see you like in in public uh you, you don't seem to be uh have any any trouble whatsoever like do, 
do you uh, do you live with pain? Do you live with any type of uh, disability? To uh, obviously, before we hit record, you'd mentioned that a lot of walking at the San Diego Supercross uh, had you feeling not so hot uh, the following day. But uh, other than that, um, what uh, what kind of holds you back nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I I still have pain, obviously, in in my body. I mean, I have a I, I still have a spinal cord injury that never goes away. Yeah, I have a. I have a bruise on my cord, which, which cannot be healed. So I have the pain that uh, resonates from that all the time, obviously. And it's in various parts of my body because my injury is in my neck. So the signals come down from your brain and get to where the injury is and everything kind of goes haywire. Um, and so like I have the pain from that. And obviously I have a limp, but I can, you know, I can hide it pretty well. Um, if I'm tired, like the limp gets more pronounced and if it's cold, I, I, I get really, really stiff and you can really tell that there's something wrong. Um, but you know what? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, hell man, it's so much better than what the alternative could possibly be no kidding. No that, kidding. that, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it sucks. And I wish I could go back to that day in San Diego and, and, and not roll through the whoops. I would just blitz through them the very first time, but um, you know that didn't happen. And this is where I'm at, and that's uh, and that's the way it is. So, you know, what do you what do you what are you going to do? Okay. It is what it is. No kidding. But uh, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like um, like that the, the the door was closed on a career that uh, many would argue that you were literally roll rolling into the the prime of your career up until uh your injury you only had two events out of the last 20 that were outside the top uh outside the top 10 and uh you're really feeling it um but uh you're you're able to uh, take the negativity uh, of, a, of a spinal injury and turn it into something positive which turned into uh the road to recovery uh um organization which is uh is, which has helped out countless riders since so uh one door was closed but another one was open yeah i mean <clears throat> i think god has a plan for all of us um you know whether you believe in it or not um yeah. that's the, everyone's own own choices and uh you know that's why we're we're human beings we can make our own choices and, and thoughts and whatnot but you know, my opinion, he had, you know, he had plans for me and uh, whether I liked it or not, that's just the way it was. And so here I am doing what I can do to try to help other people kind of pay it forward and um, just be, try to be a good person. And, you know, I, I make mistakes like anybody else does. And um, I, I try to, you know, try to do the best I can and help the people around me and, and certainly try to help out when, when these, when these riders get hurt, you know, it, uh, breaks my heart every time I see it. I mean, you know, I got hurt when I was 26 years old and I'd lived, you know, I'd gotten to see the world and made money and raced and won races and fought for championships and, and had a great career. Yeah. Um, and I see these young kids sometimes that get hurt that, that, haven't had that experience yet um you know and it's 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 so sad that you know there's so much of life that that gets cut short for them that that uh, that they don't get to experience so um yeah i mean just it, every time i hear about someone getting hurt or whatever it just breaks my heart because you know so often it's a young kid and um yeah, just yeah, just terrible. So we we try to do as much as we can for uh, for those guys who do get the injuries, and 
try to uh, you know kind of ease the pain as much as possible, even though you really you know there's some things that you you really can't affect. Um, and that's certainly trying to fix the injury because it's just at this point in time with with uh, medical science or its anatomy, it's it's an incurable uh, injury right now. No kidding, but uh, you, like the road recovery does a ton of good, and uh, you you must have come across some uh, some some great stories as well as some uh, um, uh, s- s- some rewarding things. Like, what are some of the most rewarding uh, moments of of working with road recovery? Well, I think you know um, we help everybody, right? So yeah. if you're you know, it's not like you have to be like the name guy, celebrity, big superstar, supercross guy for us to help. You know, we've helped a couple of kids that no one's known about that were licensed professionals just because that's what our charter is. And, um, you know, when you're able to help them and help their situation, help their family situation, whether that's outfitting their house so it's wheelchair accessible getting them to a good rehabilitation clinic so that they can get themselves to a point where they can go and have a, a good life. Um, and, and being able to talk to them and meet them and, and spend some time with them. I mean, that's what's fulfilling about it. I mean, it's a shitty situation, no matter what, uh, you know, brain injury, spinal cord injury, whatever that may be. It sucks. There's no getting around that. And it's horrible. And I wish it, I, I don't wish it upon my worst enemy in the world. Um, but it's the reality that we have. And if you're able to kind of ease that pain and ease that transition a little bit to, to give them an opportunity to, to do more and feel better, even if it's just to change 1% of how they feel or how they're able to, to do things, I mean, at least you're affecting change in a positive way somehow. No joke. And uh, so where can people find more information on uh, Road to Recovery and uh, possibly even donate? Because uh, uh, I know I get every time I have an opportunity to uh, to, to log on and, and donate uh, even the smallest amount to uh, uh, to aid somebody, I think it's, it's a good feeling to know that uh, the money's going to uh, to people who are really in need. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways that you can you can help and support. So you can um, you can go to our website, which is road the number two recovery dot com, and uh, and you can just make a simple donation, read up on the foundation, and and the great thing about us is we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit. So if you have any questions about what we do with the money, where the money goes, you can look at all of our tax returns for every year the foundation has been alive. So, you know, there's nothing to hide on our on our point. We want everybody to know where the money comes in, where it goes to, and, and whatnot. So uh, you can do that. You know, I believe that uh, the guys from BTO Sports, and I think, I think Rocky Mountain uh, also, like when you go and buy stuff on their website and you once you check out, I think yeah. you can, like, make a donation to the foundation that way. Or if uh, or if you're going to a Supercross race, stop by the stop by the tent. You know, learn about what we do, and um, uh, you know, make you can make a donation that way. I mean, my my my, uh, my mom and dad um, are at a lot of the races and, and do a lot of the stuff at the booth, and then we have a lot of volunteers that uh, that work as well. So 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of ways, but uh, probably the, the easiest, most convenient way is obviously on the website. No doubt. So uh, one of the questions I had for as far as your injury goes, um, like you must have had, obviously, before you were able to walk, you had a lot of uh, people taking care of you. And um, one of the most, the things that I brought to mind was, is uh, your, your parents' reaction. Uh, how, how did your parents take to this? And uh, um from like either your your mom or your dad, and uh, to see their uh, their son in in the bed there. Yeah, I mean, my dad took it pretty rough. Um, you know, he he put a lot of blame on himself, and it's like one of the things I told him, like, hey, you never, you never forced me to ride. Like, I'm the one that chose to do this. You know, and you know, there was never a time where my dad said you have to go do this. It was it was never like that. And so he took it pretty tough, but, you know, um, obviously it was probably easier for them to work through everything as my progression and my recovery started to happen. Um, had it not, I don't know how they would have reacted long-term with everything, but, you know, they're, you know, they were super great and supportive, obviously. And, um, you know, my parents live five minutes away from me and I see my mom and dad every single day still. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a lucky kid, that's for sure. No doubt, man. That's, that's awesome. Uh, throughout your, your experiences with road to recovery, have you seen, or you come across anyone who has uh, had a similar recovery to your own? Like, uh, um, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it's, it's funny. You actually, you, you end up meeting a lot of people yeah. obviously when, when this happens to you. And, uh, yeah, I've met several people that have had recoveries very, very similar to mine. And we all, we all share stories and whatnot. And, uh, you know, a lot of the recovery is similar, but then a lot of the effects that we have, uh, are different. Um, so it, uh, you know, like you get some things back, you don't get other things back, you know, uh, it's kind of, everyone's a little bit different on the whole thing. So yeah, I've, I've definitely met a handful of people that have, uh, that have had a similar result that I've had. Wow. Well, that must have been, I can't even imagine the feeling, uh, the first time you took steps on your own, um, limp, no limp, whatever. At one point, uh, there wasn't a whole lot that worked whatsoever. And to, to be able to walk out of a, a facility or, or even walk back into it to basically uh, tell that, uh, that doctor that, uh, he, he, he really, um, handled it wrong. Um, it's incredible feeling, uh, but you're, I can't even put that into words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the, the, the steps were, you know, even when it was just one or two steps, they were pretty great to take, that's for sure. Um, you know, those one or two turned into 10, and then those 10 turned into 100, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, you know, that progression was always really, really great to see. But, the, you know, the funny thing is, the first time I ever stood up, I actually blacked out because my body wasn't used to pumping that much blood through through me anymore. So, um I had to end up wearing a kidney belt for like the first couple months of learning how to walk just to keep all the blood up in, up in my upper body because it kept falling down into my legs. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things that like your body really has to, you know, to, to relearn and, and become used to doing all over again. 
Well, actually, what I was going to uh, this reminds me of uh, I did a podcast with uh, Aaron Baker about uh, about a year ago. Yeah. And um, yep. he he had told me that uh, when he first uh, got injured, he was I believe he was quad as well. And um, yep. when when they first time they sat him up, he said he felt like he was like a hundred feet in the air because all he could feel was his head. He couldn't feel like anything touching yeah. the bed. Did, do, you, do you have anything uh, quite uh, similar to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I learned how to walk before I could feel my legs, and so it's really awkward. I can only feel a little bit of pressure in my hips. And so it feels like you're walking on stilts. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, like I said, everyone's story that has a recovery is quite a bit different. And yeah, it is, uh, it's quite scary actually, right? Because when you learn to walk as a child, you know, you're, what are you, you know, you're 12 inches off the ground. Um, you know, when you learn to relearn how to walk, especially me being six foot four, it's uh it's a long way down if you know what I mean. Yeah. That's wild, man. Well, uh uh we're we're glad to have you uh walking with uh up walking with us and I I think uh definitely need to uh put in a word at at, at the with the Supercross guys to get you uh some transportation on race day so that you're you're able to take in uh more of those special events on, on Sundays and stuff like that uh, if one of those reunions uh happens to uh to be rolling down your way. Uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm probably not going to do that. I mean, like I said, I, I just need to use a little push scooter or something, but, um, yes. yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm usually pretty good, but that San Diego race, man, it was so far and I did so much walking. I was pretty wiped out the next day, but that's all right. Well, next time you just have to ask, uh, uh, Tomac if he'll, bo- if you can borrow his scooter for the rest of the day. There you go. I'll, I'll take his little green scooter. I'll steal it. There you go. Right on. Uh, like uh, uh, before, I let you go. Uh, clue the uh, the fans in and what you're doing now. Obviously, uh, not getting a whole lot of work done over at Wasserman Group this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. I, I I put a little delay on a bunch of stuff this morning, but that's good. I mean, you know, um, what we do over at WMG is we're an athlete uh, representation company, first and foremost. I mean, we do a lot in the um, in the sports business world, obviously. But first and foremost, we represent athletes. And so I represent motorsport athletes, uh, that being Supercross, Motocross, Freestyle Motocross, IndyCar, uh, Global Rallycross. If it's got an engine, I, I got something to do with it. Cool. So um, that's what we do now. And, and, you know, obviously we, we have some, some great athletes that we represent, um, obviously in motocross and whatnot, but then in other sports as well, from, from, uh, soccer to football to basketball, baseball, cricket, uh, all the snow sports, all the Olympic sports. Um, you know, we're really involved in all things sport as a whole. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's my, call it my nine to five, if you will. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's great. I'm still involved in, in a lot of the sports that I really enjoy being around, being around the people and, um, you know, get to enjoy my life. That's for sure. Oh man, no, no kidding, man. It sounds like, uh, you, you're, uh, you've, you're right where you, you want to be and, uh, you're still down in SoCal surrounded by, uh, the sport that you love and, and a lot of people who, uh, love the fact that you're still in the community and this great, this great motocross community that we have is, uh, is one that, uh, um, doesn't matter if you're a weekend warrior or a, a factory champion, uh, we're all part of the same family and, uh, that's a really cool thing to be a part of. 
Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, like I said, I, I've, I'm very blessed and fortunate, and uh, I count my lucky stars every night, that's for sure. Right on, man. Well, I uh, uh, really appreciate you giving me uh, an hour and a half of your time this afternoon, to, uh, or my afternoon, your morning, to, uh, uh, to chat and talk motocross and your career and, and all things, including some uh, a tiny rant on, uh, uh, on amateur motocross. But uh, don't hang up just yet, but we'll, uh, we'll cut it off right there. Alright, sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.